And welcome back to Rounding the News, your weekly news roundup presented by Rounding the Earth. I am your host, Liam Sturgis. And right off the bat, I have to admit something. This is, in fact, being pre-recorded Saturday night. So we are not entirely live. But as far as you are concerned, you are watching this as a live premiere. Thank you for your uh, accommodating my couple of days as I finished the research involved in this interesting uh, Ukraine-Russia story, which we're going to get to. Um, but as always, I will continue to aspire to maintain my Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern schedule. But without further ado, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can support the show by, uh, if you're on Rumble, sending a Rumble rant. If you are on Rockfin, you can send a direct tip. Or if you're on Odyssey, you can send library tokens. But even more importantly... I urge you to join us over on the Rounding the Earth Locals community, where I have posted the show notes for today's episode, along with links to watch this show live on Rumble, Rockfin, Odyssey, and uh, yes, still YouTube, as well as directly through the StreamYard platform. You can join the community as a free member, or you can sign up to support us for $5 a month or more to gain access to our weekly Locals-exclusive live streams. You can, in fact get a free month of premium support by using the code that I've pinned in the top comment, RTEJAN2022. So we should have another exciting episode of that this week. Now, without any further ado, let's get started. I'm going to try a slightly different format here. So real parody or something else. Over the last few days, there's been an article circulating with a rather alarming headline. It reads, They knew. Why didn't the unvaccinated do more to warn us? The unvaccinated knew what we didn't. Some of them said too little. Most said nothing at all. A lot of blood is now on their hands. So on and so forth. Now, of course, the piece it has a premise that is so absurd on its face, as many readers pointed out in the article's comments section. Some reacted with frustration, others with disbelief, and even more with their own stories of trying to inform their friends and family of the rather obvious risks of the novel COVID-19 gene therapies before being banished, or worse yet, losing a loved one regardless of their pleadings. It's pretty heart-wrenching stuff, to be frank. Given, though, that the author of the article is not disclosed, it's pretty reasonable to conclude that it is intended as a parody. On the other hand, it strikes just in the right place so as to cause outrage on both sides of this particular issue, leading one to suspect there may be more at play. As you will see later on in today's video, I chastise the New York Times for citing anonymous sources, but I'm going to do it in this case to illustrate an interesting perspective on the article and its host website, IQFee. I'll read this uh, forum post, I suppose it is, by someone named Max Mars. 
commenting on the article. There may be a second level to this article. It might well be about something Amazon is famous for, marketing research. On the face of the matter, it's a ridiculous assertion that no one knew and no one was warned. Really? Can you believe that at all? Is there in any way, shape, or form any possible way to envision that no one knew of the tens of thousands who were summarily dismissed, the virtually non-stop ridicule of dissenters on social media and quote-unquote news? If it's not sarcasm, it is really bad sarcasm. Or perhaps he means if it is sarcasm. Eh, anyway, I would bet that more than 30% of those comments are planted. Fishy. Really fishy. Hmm. Now, on the other hand, I lean towards a second theory, which, in response to Viva Fry, who was himself trying to figure out what the heck was going on, someone else said, Legion Steves on Twitter said, As I scroll through their Twitter, it does seem to be somewhat of a satire account, but more the kind that just says or repeats outrageous things, thinking that's humor. In any case, at this point, IQFi does not appear to be entirely earnest or at all earnest in the content it generates and shares. And uh, I've got some more stuff I might throw down a rabbit hole at a different time. But in the meantime, that's my assessment. Now, Russiagate, FBI agent charged with Russia collusion. Yes, yes. Remember back when a good chunk of the world was convinced that then-President Donald Trump was a Russian asset? I was one of those people. I am still picking up the pieces in my own head. As the public has come to learn over the last few years, the scandal, known as Russiagate, was nearly entirely fabricated. Not that Donald Trump is by any means a man innocent of all crimes. My current understanding is that there are certainly some interesting financial connections to reckon with to organized crime in both New York and Russia relating to his real estate business as briefly touched on by Whitney Webb in her own two-volume book titled One Nation Under Blackmail, which if you go into the show notes for this episode, which are posted on roundingtheearth.locals.com, I have done the uh, I have done you the service of including our affiliate link. So should you choose to buy copies of One Nation Under Blackmail Volumes 1 and 2, we will get a small commission from Amazon. Anyway. I would have brought it up despite the Amazon link, I assure you. Uh, fantastic books, both of them. Now, the long and the short of it is that Donald Trump was not found to have been colluding in any form with Russia. In a stunning and ironic turn of events, though, it would appear the colluders were under the FBI's nose the whole time. So, as reported, in PBS NewsHour, Charles McGonigal, the special agent in charge of the FBI's counterintelligence division in New York from 2016 to 2018, is accused in an indictment unsealed Monday of working with a former Soviet diplomat-turned-Russian interpreter on behalf of Oleg Deripaska, a Russian billionaire they purportedly referred to in code as, quote, the big guy and the client. McGonagall, who had supervised and participated in investigations of Russian oligarchs, including Deripaska, worked to have Deripaska's sanctions lifted in 2019 
and took money from him in 2021 to investigate a rival oligarch, the Justice Department said. The indictment is a black eye to the FBI at a time when the Bureau has become entangled in separate politically charged investigations involving the handling of classified documents by both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump. And as newly ascendant Republicans in Congress have pledged to investigate high profile decisions by the Bureau and Justice Department. My brain hurts. We're going to do a couple rapid fire stories, but not before I turn to my partner who's behind my green screen and ask if she can check on the cats who may be knocking over some old China. Wonderful. Okay, back at it again. Ukraine corruption. <laughs> this is how the sausage is made, ladies and gentlemen. Sees. You, Ukraine corruption sees high profile sausage making. No, sees high profile government dismissals. You can maybe see a theme to today's show. On January 24th, a number of high-ranking officials in the Ukrainian government were fired as a result of a, quote, ballooning corruption scandal. This included the country's deputy minister of defense, Vyacheslav Shapovalov, as well as a deputy infrastructure minister who had been detained days prior. Okay. Expounding on the implications of the government shakeup, the article concludes, while support for Ukraine remains high in the United States and Europe, some U.S. officials have begun to express worries about the risk of corruption in post-war reconstruction efforts, while others have voiced concerns that American weapons could be diverted or stolen for resale, though there has been no evidence of this. Well, that's just not true now, is it? Unfortunately, the New York Times seems to have a short memory. This is a headline originally sourced to CBS News, actually, perhaps even Reuters, and shared on the Financial Times of India. Only 30% Western weapons making it to Ukraine front line, said CBS. <sighs> I encourage you to read that article in more detail if you like. But that's the state of our reporting today. But on that note, let's get into our main topic for today because, um, well, I may have gone down a rabbit hole and done a whole bunch of calculations and investigations into domestic and international shipping rates. I wound up being completely inconsequential to the story. And that may be partially why this is coming out on Sunday as opposed to Friday at noon. But that's neither here nor there. Because on Wednesday... January 25th, Whitney Webb joined Ryan Christian on The Last American Vagabond to discuss a recent incident in Spain involving supposed domestic terror operatives sending bombs through the mail, so-called letter bombs. Now, look, while this is obviously a frightening topic and not something to be taken lightly, Ryan and Whitney make it very clear that the facts of the story are far different than how the story is being portrayed. So, what exactly is this story? It actually breaks down into a sequence of events beginning November 30th, 2022, when an envelope delivered to the Ukrainian embassy in Spain exploded. Here is the headline from the New York Times. A letter bomb delivered to the Ukrainian embassy in Madrid explodes. An employee was slightly injured. Ukraine ordered all Kiev's embassies to strengthen security after the attack. 
All right, now, quoting from the article itself, we have this. The embassy's manager was checking an envelope received in the mail when it exploded in his hands. Ole Nikolenko, a spokesman for Ukraine's foreign ministry, said in a statement on Telegram. The Spanish National Police said they were investigating the episode and that no suspects had been identified. The employee, who sustained a minor injury to a finger on his right hand, was treated at a hospital and has been released. The envelope, which arrived with the embassy's regular mail delivery, was addressed to Serhiy Pohoreltsev, Ukraine's ambassador to Spain, a spokesman for Madrid's government said in a statement. Now, note that no suspects had been identified at that time, the time of the publication of the New York Times article in late November. Furthermore, the resulting damage seems to have been limited to a minor injury to a finger, which could quite literally be referring to a paper cut based on the limited information provided. Okay. Then, on December 1st, 2022, the New York Times ran a follow-up story that revealed a further five packages described as letter bombs were in play in Spain. In addition to the Ukrainian embassy, the recipients are listed as follows. We've got the home slash office of Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, the American embassy in Spain, the headquarters of Instalaza, quote, a Spanish firm that manufactures weapons and military equipment, including some used to help Ukrainian forces, Soren Dukaru, director of the European Union Satellite Center, or SATSEN, and Margarita Robles, the Spanish Minister of Defense. Now, this is where things start to get more interesting. We get a better description of the parcels themselves, which allow us to start painting a more concrete picture in our minds. For example, the Spanish Interior Ministry is cited stating that the object intercepted en route to the Prime Minister was, quote, an envelope sent by regular mail, which appeared to contain pyrotechnic material. A few paragraphs later, however, it is then referred to as a package before broadly describing all of them as envelopes. The other parcels also reportedly contained similar material as that which caused the aforementioned finger injury at the Ukrainian embassy. Three of the six parcels were detonated, two of them by authorities, by bomb squads, and the remaining three were ostensibly put through testing to determine their origin. I quote, Initial indications suggested that the, the envelopes were sent from within Spanish territory, Mr. Perez said, and the Spanish police were analyzing the packages for fingerprints and DNA and carrying out handwriting tests. So, what of the motivations behind the attempted attacks from within Spain? The New York Times article offers the beginnings of a theory. I quote, the targets in Spain in the Spain attacks are either connected to Ukraine or have expressed support for the country in its war effort against Russia. Now, to be fair, that is not saying very much in a world where anybody even minutely critical of Ukraine or the West's support, military or otherwise, of the enigmatic nation is deplatformed, censured, tarred and feathered. 
I continue the quote. But Ignacio Torreblanca, director of the Madrid office of the European Council on Foreign Relations, cast doubt on the idea that Moscow was behind the attacks. Notice we've now transitioned into, yeah, it could be Russia, but probably not. I, re I resume the quote. If Russia were involved, he said, he would have expected the country not to hide its role. Although he acknowledged, of course, we cannot know what is going on. Again, speculation. But the European Council on Foreign Relations is a significant and highly biased player in the Russia-Ukraine conflict with funding from the, let's see, the Aspen Institute Italia, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oh, they're everywhere. The European Investment Bank, who is a stakeholder in BioNTech, by the way. European Parliament, Google, Open Society Foundations, and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, among others. The Russian embassy in Spain issued a statement condemning the attacks. Translated into English, it reads in part, any threat of terrorist act, even more directed against a diplomatic mission, is totally condemnable. This was roundly rejected by a mob of Twitter users who equated these letter bombs to Russia's bombing of Ukraine in the current military conflict even going so far as to accuse Russia of being a terrorist state. Thus, the conflations have begun. Russia's military action slash war in Ukraine is now becoming linked with Spain's series of letter bombs, at least in part of the public consciousness. The logic here is equivalent to simply Russia is bad, therefore. How dare employees at the Russian embassy express solidarity with their Spanish diplomatic colleagues? But don't let me give too much credit to Russia. I, that's not my intention. I'm just saying there's some jumping here, jumping ahead in, in a bit of a thought process. Now, the remainder of the second New York Times article focuses on reminding readers of terror of days gone by, including a quick summary, a historical recount of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, 9-11, and the U.S.-led wars of terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. Funnily enough, all of these stories actually have their own narrative ties to Russia. In a 2017 letter, Kaczynski, the Unabomber, wrote the following. I suggest that the movement that led to the Russian Revolution of 1917, and the Bolsheviks in particular, could provide a model for action today. I don't mean that anyone should look at the Bolsheviks and say, the Bolsheviks did such and such and so and so, therefore we should do the same. What I do mean is that the Russian example shows what a revolutionary movement might be able to accomplish today. Now, that's just one thing out of context. I did skim the whole letter, but I don't know what he's talking about. I don't, but out of context, you can see how that's sort of favorable to a Russian sense. But then, of course, there's the extremist groups uh, that were blamed for 9-11 and the subsequent invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, which at one point were allied with and armed by the United States government against Russia. For a much deeper, more nuanced, better researched explanation on this topic, I highly recommend, if you haven't already, watching James Corbett's excellent documentary titled 
false flags the secret history of Al-Qaeda. Finally, the article notes that because of the United States military apparatus's experience with the wars in the era of terror, I quote, federal law enforcement and the Defense Department maintain mobile laboratories that can be flown to analyze the remains of such weapons and look for clues that can be used to identify their markers. My question is, why is the United States getting involved in this so quickly and so authoritatively? Is this not thus far an issue between Spain, Ukraine, and possibly Russia? Where does the United States come into this? Do they actually rule the world? It's, it's, that's, that's, now, from innuendo to accusation, because two months later, the New York Times returned with an update to the story. This time, squarely directing the blame in Russia's direction. The January 22nd, 2023 headline reads, Russian agents suspected of directing far-right group to mail bombs in Spain. U.S. officials say the operation may be a signal by Russia that the country and its proxies could carry out more terrorist actions in Europe if nations continue supporting Ukraine. As Whitney and Ryan repeatedly point out in their analysis, the headline and article itself rely heavily on conditional terms such as suspected of, maybe, could, if, believe that, dot, dot, dot. In other words, speculation or possibly intentional misdirection. But that's me jumping ahead. Now, the prime suspect described in the article is a group called the Russian Imperial Movement or RIM. RIM was founded in 2002 by a guy named Stanislav Vorobiev, who is described by the U.S. Department of State as a Specially Designated Global Terrorist, or SDGT. He was designated as such in April 2020, when the Trump administration officially added RIM to its list of global terrorist organizations. I don't have this in the show notes, but I did happen to glance across something that said that at the time... Mr. Stanislav's response was Trump did that just to get elected. Could be. Two weeks later, Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty uploaded a video to YouTube highlighting the group's paramilitary activities. Let's watch that now. These men are preparing for urban warfare. This is a promotional video for a training camp in St. Petersburg run by a group called the Russian Imperial Movement. The RAM is linked to Russia-backed separatists in Ukraine, bomb attacks in Sweden and far-right groups across Europe and the United States. The group is in the crosshairs of the US government, which now considers them terrorists. Genius Gariev runs the courses and is also head of the Imperial Legion, the RIM's military wing, which has fought alongside Ukrainian separatists. The camp also provided training for separatists, although the courses are advertised as being for anyone who wants to survive in a crisis situation. Официально организаторы этого центра утверждают, что там все проходило легально и никаким террористическим 
методом этот центр не обучал, однако в нем проходили обучение несколько иностранцев, в частности, двое шведов, которые впоследствии, в конце 16-го, начале 17-го года, организовали в Швеции несколько терактов. Now, unfortunately, some of that was not in English. It was either Russian or Ukrainian, I'm not sure. So for those listening in the audio-only form, basically, there's a gentleman who uh, was, well, we'll get to that. But as explained by the narrator, the video is actually a part of a promotional campaign for RIM's survival slash combat training courses offered through a section of the group called the Imperial Legion. So, RIM. RIM is accused of being linked to Russia-backed separatists in Ukraine, bomb attacks in Sweden, and far-right groups across Europe and the United States. Now, the gentleman who was speaking in this that other language was named Vyacheslav Likachev, and he was introduced to elaborate on these points. Likachev, Lika, Likachev, Likachev, well, I... I wrote this wrong in one part of the script, that's for sure. But he works with a number of groups centered around combating anti-Semitism and far-right groups, including the National Minorities Monitoring Group of Networks Overcoming Anti-Semitism, or NOAA, the Center for Civil Liberties in Kiev, and the Zemina Human Rights Center. Now, examining bias, it's important to note that these organizations are funded by and partnered with some of the world's most notable political and governmental interests, including the European Commission, George Soros through the International Renaissance Foundation and Open Society Foundations, the National Endowment for Democracy, United States, or sorry, United Nations Development Program, the United States Agency for International Development, which is frequently cited as being a front for the CIA, and the United States Department of State. Okay. Furthermore, Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty, where this featurette we just listened to was aired, is itself an enterprise funded by the United States government through the U.S. Agency for Global Media. In other words, the bias here is tangible and highly relevant. Whitney and Ryan dive deep into each of the three items RIM is accused of engaging with, and I will direct viewers to watch their video for the full discussion. But RIM is one thing. The Russian state is another entirely. Later in that video, a, a U.S. State Department official named Jason Blazakis asserts that while the Russian government is not actually affiliated with the group, often actually being on the receiving end of pointed criticism from RIM, the fact that RIM operates on Russian soil implicates the Russian government by its lack of action to shut the group down. Of course, that only makes sense if RIM is indeed likely to have committed the acts of terrorism of which they are being accused, which would then imply they've broken Russian law which means even though they're Russian citizens and it's their territory, they can then, of course, be arrested and tried as criminals, which they, in theory, are slash would be if this is all true. But that's not what we're trying to solve here. I quote, 
from this gentleman. The group, which has been designated a global terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. Oh, you know what? Actually, forgive me. This is now back to the New York Times. So why does the New York Times assert that RIM is to blame for the Spanish letter bomb incidents? Now I quote the New York Times. The group, which has been designated a global terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department, is believed to have ties to Russian intelligence agencies. Important members of the group have been in Spain, and the police there have tracked its ties with far-right Spanish organizations. U.S. officials say that the Russian officers who directed the campaign appeared intent on keeping European governments off guard and may be testing out proxy groups in the event Moscow decides to escalate a conflict. The apparent aim of the action was to signal that Russia and its proxies could carry out terrorist strikes across Europe, including in the capitals of member states of NATO, which is helping defend Ukraine against Russia's invasion, said the U.S. officials, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivities around the investigation. Spain is a member of the alliance and has given military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine, as well as diplomatic support. But here is the big problem with this. None of that is rooted in fact. The sole source cited is a group of anonymous U.S. officials, which requires the reader to believe that the New York Times is trustworthy enough to stake their reputation on the veracity of the claims being made without any possible way for the reader to verify them. Trust in legacy media organizations is near its lowest, rendering this pinky promise style reporting virtually useless as anything other than propaganda. But stepping aside from the further elaborations from authoritative seeming sources that don't actually provide meaningful information, there are two questions that need to be answered in order to actually process this story. One, what is the evidence that RIM had anything to do with the letter bombs? And two, what is the evidence that RIM has anything to do with the Russian government and or their intelligence community? As far as I can tell, the New York Times provides no such supporting evidence for the remainder of the article. They do, however, hit home the following message. American and European security officials have had growing concerns about white supremacist groups with transnational links for most of the last decade. I wish to reiterate this point. Does anybody reasonably believe the New York Times or anyone else for that matter, is doing anything more than picking an easy target on which to blame this detestable and concerning act of violence without making any effort to show their work or hold themselves or their informants, their unnamed U.S. official source, accountable? But then, of course, we got another update. The same day, that Whitney and Ryan published their discussion on this letter bomb saga, the New York Times returned with yet another update. 
The headline is the following. The Spanish police make an arrest in the letter bomb case. A 74-year-old Spanish man was detained days after American and European officials said that Russian military intelligence officers might have directed the attacks. Okay, despite the prior article's ramblings on the many reasons the Russian government was likely to be responsible, the person arrested was a 74-year-old Spanish man who reportedly, quote, made and sent all of the six letter bombs himself. Not to let you think they were wrong, though, the New York Times fills out the article with snippets of the prior one, making it seem as though their assertions about the apparent intention of the attack, as far as the Russian government's motivations go, applied to this new man. This is despite the fact that the statement released by Spanish police, and now I'm going to quote the New York Times article, made no mention of any link between the man who police investigators say had technical and computer knowledge, and either far-right groups or the Russian government. Let me repeat that. The guy they got, who they believe handled this entirely on his own, though they wouldn't rule out that maybe other people were involved, but did no evidence of that, had no connection to either far-right groups or the Russian government. Okay. Here are my final thoughts. The reason why I'm focusing on this story is this. The New York Times is not being forthright in their reporting. As far as I can tell, a tragic event occurred, which thankfully resulted in essentially no damage or harm at all. I, I seriously wish that guy's finger a swift recovery. That sounded sarcastic. It actually wasn't. But maybe this kind of shows we put things in context a little bit here because, th because of the simple fact that the entire Western world is presently engaged in a war on multiple fronts, including a self-described info war, U.S. government assets were mobilized to direct the narrative immediately towards blaming Russia. This occurred even before the New York Times rolled out its anonymous, unaccountable sources, starting with innuendo and escalating to full-blown accusations. And how did they do it? It seems they selected a group that fit a certain narrative profile, which they could focus people's attention on, embedding the notion that, quote, pro-Russian white nationalists were surely the perpetrators. The Russian imperial movement certainly looks like a plausible perpetrator, but that's not how justice works. You can't just wave your hand towards someone who you don't like and settle on the logic of militant nationalists, possibly even with racist views, being the most likely culprit, so have at them. Because if this is the standard, by which we conduct ourselves in the court of law and public opinion, it will reinforce a system that allows this to be turned on anybody not aligned with the powers that be. Russia and white supremacists are easy boogeymen. But remember that the Freedom Convoy up here in Canada, one year ago today, was also described as 
racist, white supremacists with unacceptable views, possibly even funded by Russia. And how did that pan out? Not so good. I quote, CBC, that's the Canadian Broadcasting Company, CBC's ombudsman says company aired in connecting Freedom Convoy to Russia. Didn't quite meet their editorial standards of quality. They're bad. So, um, if RIM is to blame, or Russia, then the New York Times and their government handlers need to present some evidence. Really, any would do. Until then, I caution readers to ask themselves whether or not what they're seeing is rooted more in speculation or actual reporting. And that goes for me, that goes for the New York Times, that goes for Matthew, that goes for, my goodness, anybody else you could ever possibly be seeking to learn or to gain information from. This standard needs to be applied everywhere. Well, that's it for today. If you have enjoyed the show, please remember, drop us a rumble rant or a tip on Rockfin or Odyssey. And before you go, Sign up as a member to our Locals community at www.roundingtheearth.locals.com. And I remind you, you can even snag a free month of support when you use the promo code that is attached to the pinned comment on Locals. So you can go over there and do that. After which, you can keep going if you want and gain access to the -the behind-the-scenes discussions that we're keeping within our more intimate community that we're doing once a week. I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at www.liamsturgis.com or on Twitter at the Liam Sturgis. Thank you so very much, everybody. And we will see you well, almost every day this week. <laughs>